I'll speak to no one at all. Welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday, April 19th, 2023 formal meeting of the Iowa City Planning and Zoning Commission. For purposes of the minutes, I'll note who is in attendance, in attendance for the commissioners. There's Craig, Padrone, Elliot, Wade, Townsend, and Hinch. Uh, next item on the other on the agenda is public discussion of any item not on the agenda. Since there is no public present, we can pass over that agenda item. And so we'll come to number four, presentation and discussion on the city council strategic plan. And our city councilor here, Mr. Thomas, the floor is yours. Well, thank you for arranging this. Uh, I'm, I last week went to a historic preservation meeting and we, we discussed it there as well. And, and one, one thing that Historic Preservation did prior to the meeting was they developed a work plan uh, in response to the strategic plan, which I, I was a little bit surprised by, but I, I was impressed by that, you know, that they've actually looked at it critically and developed a response in terms of where they feel they need to you know, what they need to look into with respect to, you know, their their mission uh, as it is reflected in the comprehensive, I mean, in the uh, strategic plan. So um, I don't know if you would want to consider that, but I, I did think it was kind of an interesting um, response. Maybe something may come out of the meeting tonight or our conversations that uh, might lead to that. Um, you know, we were just last night at a, uh, you know, had a uh, consultation and then our meeting. And, um, you know, I don't know if you watched our, our discussion. I wasn't so much concerned, and I guess we're, do we have more readings on that? We do. But my concern was the, um, the process, not so much the zoning, that uh, it was not, there were no conditions on the rezoning. And insofar as it's, uh, and uh, commercial intensive, which is a fairly intense land use. Um, the only other categories I think maybe more intense would be industrial, uh, that oftentimes in a intense commercial zone, you will have, you will pay special attention as our code calls for to uh, address whatever negative impacts may come from the the use that takes place on those properties that are zone commercial intensive. And insofar as we didn't know what the use was, it made it difficult to, how do you, how do you respond to the um, impacts? We don't know what the impacts will be. Uh, and I mentioned that, you know, <coughs> been, I'm like you, Mike, I've been around City Hall a while in terms of planning its zoning. And just because I, I don't know that all the commissioners know that, but John is a former PNZ commissioner, so oh, he has okay. more knowledge of PNZ than I think probably any other city councilor. So when he speaks, I always listen because he's been in the trenches of it. It, it, it is. A, I think it's a great prerequisite if anyone has uh, interest in serving on city council. Um, I think it's it's really valuable to have. So at least some background. I was maybe that's a maybe that's a work uh, action item is developing a short course for um, uh, city council members that so they have some idea what what is how do we govern land use you know in terms of the comprehensive plan what's its relationship to the zoning code what are the zoning codes what are these 
district plans that we have, and you know what what actually is the comprehensive plan? It's encompassed in a whole range of different documents, so it's kind of hard to keep track of exactly what the comprehensive plan is. It's not one volume; it's multiple volumes that are continually changing. So it's kind of hard to keep track of it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I spent three and a half years on PNZ, and the uh, while I was there, uh, the the Billion Auto. Uh, dealership came before PNZ, so it that particular property did go through a planning and zoning review. There was a specific plan for that property, and there were conditions on the rezoning. And I think that was, I would say, I don't know if it was always applied in that general area, but I think most of the properties developed went through PNZ and City Council. So as as you know, last night without any conditions, the um, with the approval, it, it's handled administratively. So there isn't, that's it, you know, we're, we're done. Uh, so that, that is one issue for me um, that I'm concerned with, uh, that there, you know, wh when do we do that? When do we say uh, we can, we'll just simply rezone? How is that decision made without going through, um, you know, requiring an application along with the rezoning um, for a particular project. But if you look at why that property was rezoned and then we rezoned it back, rezoned it back to what it was, it was rezoned in the hopes of attracting development and it right. didn't work. I mean, but it was, that's why it was rezoned that time. Right. So, I mean, I think that that's absolutely a good reason to, you know, in the right part, it was in the right part of town. It was, this is the kind of development that people felt was ready to happen. It just didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't happen there. Well, so, and I, and I, so I don't, I mean, I, I think you can absolutely rezone without having a exact, I mean, it's happened to us many times now. Well, <laughs> and I think, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that is our job. We only review the code, but we, we shouldn't have to review every project specifically. Because then once the land is rezoned, or whatever is the zone that it, it already has, you know, you can build whatever the code says. So I don't think it would be... but. Just correct me if I'm wrong, or like if anybody disagrees. I don't think we should be um, reviewing each project one by one. Does it make sense? Well, I think it. it in my experience, um, you know, I could cite examples. The first one that comes to my mind was the first one I ever encountered, and it was before I was on planning and zoning. I was uh, the North Side neighborhood coordinator. And uh, there was a project proposed at the corner of Lynn and Bloomington and had a project associated with the rezoning. And the council at that time um, denied the project but uh, uh, approved the rezoning, a portion of the rezoning. It was a, the rezoning would have covered three lots and, and what they agreed to were the two lots facing Lynn Street. The third lot would have wrapped around the corner onto Bloomington. So they voted down the project, approved the rezoning, and that then came back as another project, uh, which is the one you have, which is the one that was built there now. Uh, so what I, what I found useful, useful about having the project was 
it gave me a, a sense that, you know, not all projects are the same in terms of how they meet the zoning code and the comprehensive plan. So it can be helpful to see how the zone is being interpreted by the project with respect to meeting the language of the comprehensive plan. But anyway, I don't want to get too, uh, we're, we're not talking, well, we're talking strategic plan, I guess, in a sense, in that it, it gets into issues of public engagement, um, which I think kind of pertains to what we're talking about. You know, how, how do we, how do we define and, and select our processes on these projects that go through the PNZ um, so that the public has confidence in our decision making? Um, and when we have controversial projects, how do we want to address them in terms of ensuring that we don't end up in situations where the community feels that there's been a lack of transparency or uh, you know, that they weren't heard, um, those sorts of things. I, I've always felt I was kind of drawn into Iowa City politics because I felt some of the decisions made on the land use on land use matters were um, not optimizing the projects in terms of win-win. It seemed like there were people who were winning and there were people who felt they were losing. And I've, my feeling was, is it, can we strive to try to, you know, develop projects where, the, where that, there, we don't result, the, the result doesn't end in that way. Um, and I know I've been involved in personal projects where I felt we, we did a, um, we made an effort to try to ensure that that happened. Uh, because we are one community. You know, we're, this is not a game where there are winners and losers. We're one community. And I, I've just met too many people who felt burned out, you know, by the, the tensions and struggles that uh, they encountered while engaging in city politics. I mean, you, you lost a commissioner. Um, just recently, and I was, you know, that, I, you know, I listened to your discussion of, um, you know, when Mark came for his last meeting, it was a very emotional response on your part, um, which I, I totally was sympathetic to. I think Mark, Mark's experience and his sensibilities were really valuable to P&Z. So, um, anyway, I mean, there's just, how, how can we try to get work through this process, you know, in this strategic plan to, um, f you know, promote this idea that we are one community? Because I do feel um, we are in difficult times and those difficult times will continue with respect to, you know, what some people call the polycrisis. You know, one of, one of the issues here in terms of values is the climate action plan. Um, we are facing. Around. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah. Jump around. <laughs> um, I, I tend to view it as the, the climate action, the climate issues related to climate, are um, in, a, in one in one respect the another symptom of what some people have called the fact that we have exceeded the carrying capacity of the planet. Um, which has resulted in what is referred to as overshoot. And one of the consequences of that overshoot exceeding the carrying capacity of the planet is climate change. But there are other 
impacts as well. You know, in Iowa, we have soil erosion, we have, um, you know, flooding, um, you know, the nitrates in our water quality, a lot of things associated with our industrial agriculture are part of the exceeding the carrying capacity of the, the land in Iowa. Um, so there, there are a number of, it's some, some people refer to it as the polycrisis, you know, we're just dealing with multiple issues. And faced with all those issues, one of my greatest concerns with respect to climate action and all the other impacts is, do we hold, do we hold ourselves together as a community? Or do we end up under the stresses and strains of that, um, you know, experiencing trauma on a personal level or perhaps on a social level? Um, so I'm, I'm looking and trying to find ways and in, in, in faced with the, the, these challenges and difficulties we'll have, how can we, through our public processes and building social capital on our own, um, prepare ourselves for the, the times ahead? Because I think you know, they, they, they're already challenging and, and they're going to continue to be challenging. Um, we, we do have the slides. I don't know, do we, uh, we could just sort of go through them and if there's anything that prompts um, points or comments you'd like to make. Um, yeah, we can go to the next slide, I think. So here, here's an example of what I was just talking about, all, all the various challenges. Um, and, and we could come up with more bullet points if we wanted to. It's, it's a long list of things. I, I, uh, you know, we live in a time of extraordinary uncertainty. And um, so the, the degree we can try to allow ourselves some comfort in a time of uncertainty, I think that, will, that would be beneficial. So we spent a long time on this. We started it in March, and I don't think we completed until the end of last year, working with um, ECCOG. And uh, you know, it was also incorporated the, some of the points of view of Think Iowa City and ICAD and you know, some of the other local entities that are involved in, in various issues um, attached to, to Iowa City. And then again, the values. Should I keep going? Yeah, sure. Um, all of them obviously very, very important. Um, I've been, you know, mentioning some of the things regarding partnership engagement. I, and that, that notion of engagement to me is, is a um, multifaceted one. I'm, I'm very interested in seeing if we can't promote um, governance at a more local level within our neighborhoods and more localized communities. I like, I like that kind of in-person, face-to-face conversation you can have at that scale. Um, and so trying to promote ways in which, you know, you can become acquainted with your neighbors um, in smaller groups. I think I've, I've since learned too that as, as a species, Homo sapien, most of our existence as a species were in small groups. You know, it's only been arguably, you know, in the last 400 years that we've, of our existence as a species, that we've moved beyond um, small groups. So we're, 
it's kind of in our genetic code to function at that level. And I, I've found that that, you know, I certainly feel very comfortable in my neighborhood as a way of uh, experiencing the world, getting to know my neighbors. Um, and that all entails uh, ways in which you can encounter people. That's something, uh, my background is in landscape architecture, so I'm, and I design public spaces, so I was, I've always been fascinated with how do we create the space in which uh, people can encounter one another? And it can be at different scales. You know, it can be um, just on a block where you run into your neighbor on the sidewalk, or it could be in a neighborhood park. It could be the celebration over women's basketball in front of Old Capitol. Ideally, you have a whole nest of different spaces in which we can relate to one another as, as one community or in a smaller neighborhood. Um, all of those, I think, are really important in building connections with others. And that's what, you know, I think COVID, for me, um, really brought home, you know, how isolated we can be, and uh, depending on our circumstances. And those, those opportunities during COVID, when, when we were all sheltering in place, I think revealed, you know, how some neighborhoods are rich, in ways one can relate to others within you know five minute walk of their their home other neighborhoods maybe not so much and um so as i think as we all learn covid revealed a lot of the inequities running through our community and um i would say one of them is just access to social spaces is not equally distributed um and no, i guess we can go on the next slide So I think there's really great language in the strategic plan. Um, I think one of the challenges is really, you know, bringing it in in a, in a very compelling way into our own thinking because I know how, um, you know, we can, we can read through these, this language and, all, you know, kind of nod our head in agreement with it, but to actually have it inform our behavior and our decision making can be challenging, I've found. Okay. I again personally uh, the the item there the biodiverse environment found throughout our community. I I think one of one of again the challenges we face in an in an urbanized setting in a state which is been probably transform more than any other state in the country in terms of its land of, that makes up Iowa. Um, creating biodiverse environments is, is a challenge. Uh, many people would say, and I think it's especially true in Iowa, that the, um, with the loss of habitat, that one opportunity you have in cities is, is ensuring that we have habitat within the <clears throat> urban areas. So our natural areas, our, garden, our personal gardens, our parks, all of those can contribute to creating habitat because we're, we're short on natural area outside the city. Yeah. And so. interestingly, that's one area that's not addressed very well in our comprehensive plan about 
<clears throat> trying to rewild or provide habitat, you know, because Iowa is really a monoculture state, mm -hmm. and to get, you know, just be intentional about creating pollinator habitat and brown bat habitat and those sort of things that are more friendly to an urban environment. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, exactly. In fact, you know, I've, I've had many conversations with uh, Backyard Abundance um, and, and those who are, you know, interested in, in community gardening and things of that sort. Uh, and, and they agree, I, and I agree with their point of view, and I've done it in my own yard, you know, where I initially, when I moved here, I was planting row crop, not row crops, but, you know, annual vegetables. Uh, and I realized um, maybe I don't need to do that. Maybe what I should be doing in my yard is creating habitat for um, pollinators and, and natural, natural habitat for native plants and, and critters. Uh, maybe it's more valuable that way. I can always go to the farmer's market um, and, and, you know, the market, our supermarkets, they have excellent produce. Um, and it's kind of hard growing things from seed every single year, you know. And you have to break the ground and, you know, fight the weeds. Iowa is just, it's like multiple waves of weeds through the growing season. Uh, so in, in a sense, I found it easier just to plant, plant perennials and... Um, enjoy being around all the birds and insects and uh, the flowers and so forth. Um, what, what Iowa does have, although it lost probably over 99% of it, was I think one of the most beautiful plant communities in the world of the prairie. Uh, it's just an extraordinary uh, plant community. Uh, you know, the, between the grasses and the, and the, and the forbs as they're referred to. Um, when I learned about that in California, and I saw profiles of how deep the roots in these plants go, which is why Iowa has its soils, I was just astonished. You know, you don't, you don't have topsoil in Iowa. You know, it goes, it's too deep. Um, so, you know, reverting to prairie has just been a revelation for me at a, at, at a backyard level. Um, and it is something... Um, I've been trying to promote, we did some planting in North Market Square, if you're familiar with that. There are perennial beds. Um, it's not all lawn. We did take out some of it. So, so that, I think that's an interesting thing to do, to do locally, and it can be, you know, in terms of building relationships with your neighbors. I think it's a, that's an interesting way to go, is community gardening. Maybe it's not edibles, maybe it's or maybe it's a combination of edibles and um, native plants. Um, next slide. So this is the one we were talking about, some of these comments. You know, how do we, I want, I really, my goal is that when people come to City Hall, um, at least they don't, they're not, you know, how can we minimize the, the sense that they just feel <coughs> left out, angry uh, with, with the outcome? Because I, I'm just concerned that when that happens, we, we may lose people, you know, because they just feel that the process isn't worth their time. Life is, as I was saying, it's difficult enough. Um, and, you know, in my in my background designing public spaces, what I what I found interesting about it was, it we sometimes refer to it as working on the design of a neighborhood park, 
could be kind of a gateway drug to deeper civic involvement because you, you have a engagement on that project, you feel better about it, um, you feel like you had a role to play, and it's kind of like walking in the shallow end and then, okay, maybe I'll take on some of the more challenging issues we have as a community. I've, we've had some success on this, let's, let's build on it. Um, so that, that's what I'm hoping to see more of, that people have a sense of confidence and uh, interest in city affairs, whatever they may be. Uh, you know, there's no question land use is one of the more challenging issues. Um, but to the extent we can try to find common ground, that's, that's something that I'm always trying to strive for. So that's the, one of the questions. Um, is how, you know, and I think we've, you know, Mark, I personally would like to talk to Mark in more, more detail to understand what, you know, what, were there any particular things um, that, that caused him to resign? Um, what, were, what were the stress points? Um, but in terms of those values, um, you know, I was, I was noting personally, um, you know, that there was that issue of the, I think some, I think you might have referred to it, Mike, as the bait and switch on the project uh, north of the tracks. Uh, Myrtle and uh, yeah. Um I mean, that was, be, that was again because we, we, we didn't tie the, the original project to the rezoning. It was, you know, not a condition of that rezoning. And so it was possible to, to, to go in a different direction without having to come back. Um, but they still, you know, they, they still were in the comprehensive plan. It was still zoned correctly. They didn't do anything outside of what that area allows. Uh-huh. And, I mean, and if the project isn't financially feasible or becomes, you know, you can have a dream, but when the banker says, that's not going to work for your bottom line. Yeah, you well, have to change, and that's. And I think that's. I'm, I think that's what happened in this right. instance, and so we're very disappointed about that. Yeah, it's the, almost better not to have known. The point we is, is we were they could just come right. back under a new application. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not so suggesting that the project ends. Um, it just means that reapply with with a new project. That's that's all I I would say would be the the way in which we could avoid that sense of feeling we were promised something and that's not what we got, that rather than that feeling, the feeling of, okay, they, they realized financially it, it didn't pan out, um, they're going to apply with a new project. If, if I could speak to this a little bit, because I think this conversation is interesting and it's something we've talked about with the commission before. I mean, part of the reason that we have the Riverfront Crossings Master Plan and the form-based code is to make that process easy for developers. And we, we, we adopted a vision and made it clear that we want this property zoned Riverfront Crossings West. That's what it says in the plan. We adopted specific form-based regulations for how we want those projects to be developed. Um, and like Susan said and, and Maggie said, um, that was the vision, and they're staying true to that even though the project changed. Right. 
I, I, my observation is that, because we've done a number of projects through the form-based code for riverfront crossings, um, some large, some small. What some of my favorites, and where I think, at least from my perspective, there is, you know, because the, the idea with the form-based code is predictability. You know, we're just, don't pay attention to the use, pay attention to the form. Uh, the, the form of a couple of projects uh, in the, and it's, it's also in a transition zone, uh, the Near East side, <coughs> near, near where Blank and McCune is, uh, across the street from Blank and McCune on College. That's a form-based code project, um, and it's a relatively small site. It's, uh, you know, 125 feet deep and maybe 80 feet wide. And it's two buildings. It's uh, townhouses along Van Buren, and then on to the east of that is a apartment building. Where I, I think things can um, be less predictable is when the sites are larger. As they get larger, then you know the the way the code is written, there can be outcomes, uh, very extremely different outcomes um, that you know don't have the predictability that you you can have with a smaller site. Um, so that's that's something that I've seen is that the, the projects can change dramatically, even though both arguably comply um, with the code. That you you shouldn't expect that they will have similarities. There, there could be considerable differences. Um, th that's, that's, you know, my concern is, you know, and, and those differences could play out in terms of what the goals of the comprehensive plan are. So that, that's, again, just my observation. Um, the, the projects, in, at least in terms of my expectation with the form-based code, have been more successful when they are um, more, more or less the size of the projects that were identified in the Riverfront Crossings master plan itself. And, and so, you know, that, that's my observation after years of seeing the code play out, is the bigger the project, um, or the bigger the site, and, and in many cases these have been consolidated lots. That's, you know, you have, um, you know, the, the Gilbane project is a full block. Uh, the master plan called for four developments on that block. It's one development now. Um, and then, you know, the one that was added, you know, where we added on the, on the um, other side of the river, uh, west of Riverside Drive, uh, the project north of the tracks, I don't, that was multiple lots, I'm not sure how many that was, but it was, it's a big, big site. I think it's over three and a half acres, something like that. Um, so there's, there's going to be more variability and less predictability the larger the lot size. Which again, I, I'm not saying our code allows for that consolidation, the question is should we Acknowledge that the predictability from project to project, you know, it's, it, you, can you can create many different projects on a large site, and so the predictability uh, diminishes the larger the site. Should that, should, should we reconsider our review process when you're talking about a, a project that's over, 
you know, some size, half an acre, an acre, I don't know. Um, that's a different, a different project with potentially a different impact. But I, I just have a comment. But then what would happen if someone wants to build a project in a, in a plot that is already on the zone that is supposed to be? Then it doesn't even come to us. If it's, I'm sorry, I missed the So let's say I want to put a building in a, in a site where it's already the correct code zone, right? Then it won't even come to the planning and zoning, so nobody has to review it, right? And they can just build whatever they want. So then, how how is that fair? That because someone wants to build something in in a you know in a site that has been that has a temporary code that will change eventually, and then they have to come to us and we can tell them like, no, this is like you know you are in the right zone, but I don't like this building. And then another person can build whatever they want because the site is already on the right zone code. Am I? I just want to take this opportunity to, to make sure the conversation is directed to the strategic plan tonight during this time. Right. Well, yeah, I, I guess we are. What could we do to carry out these values in terms of? Um, well, well, I think the, the, the biggest slide. way that we carry out the values is through <clears throat> the public input process. And, you know, we had a really good conversation recently about, you know, we changed our bylaws to, to be a little more regimented in how that public input process happens. And the tension between trying to make that fair for everybody and at the same time acknowledge the level that some people bring to the conversation that is very, very important to them. And it was a good conversation and I think went along with what, you know, the strategic plan is trying to get at in being an inclusive government and listening to all voices. And I think that we do a very good job of that. Yeah, and I think another example is um, just a reminder, because it's easy to forget things we've done. Like we increased the distance that we send out public notices for rezonings and other activities. Um, we put an increased emphasis on good neighbor meetings. Right. And then um, we, I don't think we've ever cut off public input. We've gone way late. So everybody has the chance to speak as, you know, and so I think we do a pretty good job of that, but we can always do better. I think that when we vote one way or another, between all of us, right, we give very good reasons overall, and then our chair always explains more and more. So we never say, like, no, and then that's it. And I think that's one way. Yeah, it's hard to see people not going away feeling like <laughs> they've been heard when uh, developments coming into their area that they don't want. I mean, they, I feel like they always go away mad. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, it's just the way it is. I think that's just a, a human factor because it is frustrating on both our sides. If people provide their input and then the vote goes contrary to what their input right. was, and so they feel like they weren't heard. Well, what they're doing is providing, they're informing our decision making and that's been accomplished. So, um, 
they may have not got the output that they wanted, but their input was respected and heard. Yeah, sometimes we make conditions based on, yeah. on what they've said. And of course, if we're fair with everyone that comes through here in the same way, if we're using the same rules for everybody, then how can you complain? I mean, you may not be happy with it, but we've followed the codes, we've followed the zones, we've done what we were supposed to do, we've done our job, we've listened to what you have to say, and what you have to say is not against the rules. So as long as we're not saying, oh, because you're rich, we'll let you do this, and because you're poor, we, you can't do this, we don't do that. Um, so I think as long as we stay within those lines, and when we, like you said, when we see something that's a little different, then we try to change it so that the input is better, uh, like giving them more time or uh, listening to uh, any whoever wants to talk. It's their chance. Um, I think that's what we do. <coughs> Yeah, I've I've watched many of your meetings, and I, I I'm pleased with with the the way in you the way in which you engage with speakers from the public works well, very well. I mean, well. we have to give a lot to our leaders too. I mean, I think he does a great job mm -hmm. of keeping things under control and letting people know that okay, that's not when that's not this that's not that part of the meeting, or uh, you know, you have to wait your turn. Or, I'm sure we have the same feeling that city councilors do. Um, when they hear negative feedback, they'll say, like, I wrote you a letter, I spoke to you, I came to meetings, and you still voted adversely right. to it. Well, um, you giving your opinion, even if you get 100 people to say it, doesn't mean you're going to get your perspective followed. It's always that whole thing of you're informing our decision-making. You're not making our decision for us. And it, 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 it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I don't know there's an easy answer to that. Is this the time as we're talking about strategic planning, I think of the things that we talk about that are frustrating is some of that, um, I don't know if, if, I mean, I don't know how to go about this, but um, when I think of biodiversity, we've talked about can we make that part of, uh, somehow part of the process that, um, that we look at the biodiversity of the area and is that being maintained or can it be improved? We talk about, um, what are those uh, swales that, you know, that are in? Oh, swales? That are in, and then, the, and then the, oh, the homeowners have to take care of it, and they never take care of oh, it. the detention yeah, the ponds? Yeah. yeah. I mean, are the, is this the time with strategic planning that we that look at? part of a development. That we look at, is there something that we can do to bring forward to the city council well, actually, to address that? Well, actually, I think what John brought up about the Historic Preservation Commission is probably a good idea, that we can look... Um, maybe have a, a session where we, one of our agenda items is discussing the city's strategic plan and then how we can respond to that. If there's some suggestions we can make um, to the council or to ourselves about how to incorporate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I, I, th I view this in, as an opportunity to um, provide feedback on, on your own processes and decision-making. I know that I'm, you know, like with respect to some of the projects, you know, over the years, not just the ones you perhaps have voted on, um, but just the general condition in Iowa City that, uh, of the urban condition, which resulted from prior decisions that were made with respect to land use. And evaluate which ones seem to be were successful and which ones 
you know, perhaps less so. Um, and be particularly observant about your own decision making. You know, what your ex expectation was um, and an understanding of, of the process and the project and then observing it once it's constructed to see is it is it in fact of benefit to the you know to the community to the public life of this community is it in a sense consistent with the comprehensive plan as you noted mike is kind of your charge um, I, I think that's an interesting thing to do o over time because you know when I, f I first moved here in 2010 or late 2009 and I hadn't read a comprehensive plan before. <laughs> I had worked in, in land use related issues, uh, public lands, but I hadn't read a comprehensive plan. And I found it interesting because in all instances, you know, the, with the zones, it talks about compatibility with the neighborhood. And I've gone through neighborhoods and I thought, how, how is this project compatible with the neighborhood? <laughs> so I mean, it's that, you know, and, and in some cases, um, a project that was approved by some prior planning and zoning commission and city council um, as consistent with the comp plan and so on and so forth is now um, rezoned redevelopment because it's an acknowledged failure. The area that I'm aware of in this regard is south of Burlington, you know, the multifamily developments on Johnson and Van Buren in that area. It's, it's a redevelopment area because of lack of usable open space and crowding. So how does that, how could that inform your job right now, you know, in terms of usable open space, um, the way the buildings are configured and so forth? Um, what makes for a successful project as it translates to planning and zoning. Well, again, I feel like we're following what's in the comp plan. We, I don't feel like I make, can make a decision, or I won't make a decision that's, I feel is outside of what's in the comp plan for that zone, so. Maybe the next item on here is action steps. Do you want to maybe talk about some of the action steps that would end up coming before PNZ? Sure, yeah, what? Um, um, I don't know what slide. Did we cover the action steps? That, that was next. This is supposed to be on impact areas and action steps. I don't know if it gets down to the action steps in this PowerPoint. Strategy number one is updating the comprehensive planning and zoning code to encourage compact and diverse housing types and land uses. So that's something that the strategic plan calls out that will definitely be coming back to this commission. And we've discussed low-income housing many times on this commission, and I've learned a lot about you know, through information supplied by the staff, I've learned a lot about about how it doesn't doesn't work well, and you know, it that, that's a struggle. It's it's a real struggle everywhere, and and in Iowa City, where housing is 
very expensive. It's it's more of a struggle than some places. Yeah, and then and. Then in Iowa, probably doesn't worry about what the rent sure is. Sure don't. But then if you look at item number five on the residential development analysis, that's next. That's not encouraging when you read that. I mean, right. Prices are going to go up if everything stays status quo. Right. Right. It presents a little bit of a challenge, and um, I appreciate you joining, but. Uh, when we talk about creating more green space um, and more area to make it uh, a friendlier neighborhood, then that decreases the density. So in, in a goal of achieving both affordable housing and surplus of housing, then it becomes conflicting when um, we want to try to increase um, the green space and such. So it's trying to find that balance in both, which sometimes becomes a little bit subjective. And I think overall we try to do a good job with it, but mm -hmm. you know, it's a continuous improvement, but um, uh, releasing density within uh, the Van Buren Johnson Street area, um, that density has to go somewhere and people have to go somewhere. So w w where consumes that density and also remaining the walkability of being close to downtown and so on you know, finding that that area. Um, so either it has to build up or it has to build out. So. Yeah, it is a challenge. It's, um, you know, trying to increase density, not, not the best word in my opinion, in yeah. terms of, um, while at the same time, and this is what, you know, the redevelopment, and if you walk through that area, you know, that how, how can density be developed in a manner which provides open space. You know, it, as you were saying, it, it could be, you know, I think the, the intent there, my observation would be that the, the, the apartment buildings were attempting to, to be of a scale that would be compatible with the neighborhood. But when you increase density to an RM44 level uh, without going to, say, a four-story building height in order to achieve that, between the parking, lot, the parking requirements and the, the unit densities, there, there was nothing left. So something has, the equation has to be reconsidered. And yet if you go to a real, a real urban area, there is nothing left. And so you need to capture your public spaces to serve a very highly dense, I mean, I spend a fair amount of time in Brooklyn, New York, where my son lives, and it is, <coughs> it is, it was a revelation to the Iowa girl to see yeah. how the public space, nobody has, I mean, m most people don't even have any kind of yard at all. Right. They don't have a place to park a car. They don't have, they have nothing. And, and and the houses that do have yards have very small yards. Yeah. And, but the public spaces make up for it. Exactly. Because they're everywhere. And, you know, they're fairly well maintained. Everyone is in them. I mean, there is no, <laughs> there is no rich, poor, whatever, though that's where this kind of person goes, whatever. They're all in the public spaces because the building density 
drives them into the public space to be outside, mm -hmm. which is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think of the peninsula where, you know, there's very small, I mean, the, the housing is very close together, and then you have a park, the public park. Yeah, you have, you have are you talking about the dog park? No, I'm talking about the park, I don't the know little, the name of it. The little small yeah, park, right. yeah. The, as I said earlier, there, it's nice to have open spaces of different, si of different sizes. So you have the dog park, then you have the, the little central park, which is not very large. It's only, I think, about 13,000 square feet. But it's, it's, a, it's like a little pocket park um, that, as you were saying, Susan, is easily accessible to the residents of the peninsula. And what happened in the south of, Burling or south of Burlington area was higher densities without, okay, if, if we're going to go from single-family residential to RM44, that's going to, when you consider the parking requirement and the whole lot is going to be developed, maybe we need to acquire some of these properties that, you know, were, where there were houses and consolidate a couple of those and create a pocket park of some sort. Something to, if there isn't an, an existing park nearby, um, and perhaps if there were, acknowledge that you're going to have more users than you did in the past. Um, because with single-family homes, you have a sizable open space behind every house. Um, all of those Right, are, and the form-based code is, has addressed that in some degree. Right, so, so with form-based code right. comes the, and, and higher densities, comes the necessity to make sure that there's easily accessible open space in conjunction with that. Right. Um, and so, you know, when you look at the comprehensive plan, follow the plan in terms of not only the development, but the open space opportunities that the plan includes as well. Um, that, I, you know, it's, it's, if you look at Rorit, Riverfront Crossings, South District, they all, which, which I particularly like the, the latter two, Rorit and, and South District, there's, there's a complete full acknowledgement of this is development, and it's development that's also acknowledged the need for well-distributed open space. Uh, that was a new concept, you know, the idea that you, when you, when you zone an area of that size, be sure to include a network of open spaces within the development area. There are some neighborhoods in Iowa City that don't have access to a neighborhood park. That's something that I identified um, in the park's master plan. So that, I mean, in, you know, like one example being um, the Lucas Farm neighborhood. Uh, there, there is a, well, there's Highland Park. I was gonna say, there's a little pocket that's park it. there, <laughs> right. Um, that, that's, that's a mini park. It would be nice to have a central gathering space, and that's in the strategic plan. You know, if you look under neighborhoods and housing, um, at least one place serving as a center. That was a new concept introduced in this strategic plan. So how are you addressing this permanent affordable housing <coughs> And what exactly is that permanent affordable housing? That, I mean, that is the, you know, the $64,000 question, I mean, but. I, I, Way more I, than love that. I love the fact that it's there. But since I've been on commission, this is a term mm. that keeps coming out. And those places are not affordable for people that need it. So yeah. I think if we want to be fair, 
uh, we need to address that issue um, because it's a it's a problem. We've got a lot of poor folks in Iowa City yeah. that can't afford this affordable housing, and the this you this whole uh, division that subdivision that we just put up on Riverside tore down a lot of affordable housing, and you're putting up these high rises that are going to be expensive, and where are these folks supposed to go? I mean, is it an, is it, it's not our place, but I think it's your place as city council to think about those people. Yeah, I, I, I've been sharing you, sharing with you many of my thoughts. I don't know if I should continue to do that. And my other one is Forest View. Oh, Forest View. So yeah, I don't I know. get me, I'm trying to be very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for you to address that piece. Yeah. And um, I'm not hearing anything about that piece. Except it's printed. That was here. that was a tragedy. Um, Which one? <laughs> well, Forest View. Uh, but yeah, the the question of um, affordable housing. You know, some of the things that I would like to bring to council would be uh, enabling our nonprofits. Uh, for example, um, the housing fellowship to have in its portfolio market rate housing. So it would be a blend of affordable and market rate with the idea that the rents from their market rate units combined with the rents from their affordable units would give their, their and it, as them as an entity more revenue stream, more of a revenue stream um, to provide affordable housing. And if you were to mix market with um, with affordable in one building, you'd have kind of a diversity of occupants in that building, so you wouldn't be over-concentrating, um, you know, but at this the affordable point, those units. are 10 to 20 year commitments. This would be permanent. If, 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 the, if our nonprofits in the business, you know, whose mission is to create affordable housing had uh, a larger percentage of their portfolio market rate, that would provide them with the income to provide permanent affordable housing. It's, it's very difficult in a market where you have, um, you know, that is seeing increases in land values to provide affordable housing. So my, my, my strategy would be that the city and the nonprofits need to be more ag aggressive finding affordable properties to build, to build on one of the challenges is once you rezone, the land values go up. So it's almost better. I mean, if you look at the land values paid by some of our developers for some of the, the lands in riverfront crossings, it's astonishing what they're paying on a per square foot basis. But they know they're going to get their money. Well, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're not going to lose anything. They, <laughs> but that's why affordable housing isn't affordable, because yeah, they have to I mean, invest there's, there's, so many millions of yeah. dollars it to build to it. It seems to me that, that, that we could do something so, so that it's not so profitable for those well, builders it, coming in. I mean, one, one, another thought I'm just having, having seen uh, what land is selling for in riverfront crossings is and this, this would require a change. I don't even know if it's possible, but you know, part of, if we do in-lieu fees and riverfront crossings, we have to spend those in-lieu fees and riverfront crossings. And the cost of land and riverfront crossings from an affordable housing standpoint is arguably prohibitive. It's very expensive. Maybe so, that's the, what we need to address. So, so the idea that maybe we can <coughs> look at uh, looking at this language 
that it has to be used in riverfront crossings. Maybe there's a way of expanding the envelope, so to speak. But then you have no affordable housing in riverfront crossings. I'm just saying th that's the, the well, conundrum that you have is if you spend the money elsewhere where land is less expensive. I would, I would look for proximity, of course. I, I, would, I would want to try to find something as close to the source of the income as possible. Um, but the land values in riverfront crossings are extremely high. So, you know, you, I just learned the other day, we, we have $3.8 million in our um, bank account for affordable housing in riverfront crossings. But it's, it's extremely expensive to purchase land in riverfront crossings. You could easily absorb half of that with one land purchase. And I don't think it has to be in riverfront crossing. I mean, how many of the areas that the, that the single-family homes are built in are, have no affordable housing? I mean, so what are we saying here? It's okay for one group of people not to have affordable housing, but it's not okay for the other group. I agree. I think if, I mean, it says in the strategic plan that it should be dispersed throughout the community. and. And I absolutely agree with that. I, I agree with you, but I'm talking the real world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, I, I've heard it said sometimes, you know, we, we develop these documents, like the strategic plan and um, the comprehensive plan, and they're, they're inspiring and aspirational, and then reality hits. Well, that, I, you I know, many, many parts of Iowa City are not designed in a manner, you know, in terms of their existing layout of the properties, uh, it's very difficult to create opportunities for affordable housing. So th there, there are limits, unfortunately, to how many neighborhoods would adapt to missing middle housing. It, 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 it's not going to happen everywhere. So it, it's, I mean, that's a, just a built-in challenge that we have. Where, where, where will it work? I just want us not to stop saying all these beautiful words and start making some changes to make <coughs> it happen. Right. So we know we all, we all know we need affordable housing. Um, I know that I would not like to see it all in one part of Iowa City. That's not what we want. But there are areas where it is conducive. It's, it's, been, the houses have been there. The apartments have been there. And now we're tearing them down because they're old but we're replacing them with high-rise apart units that are expensive. And the, those, those people that were in those, those spaces can no longer afford those spaces. Right. So let's, you know. Well, we, we will be going as, you know, this is on, on the, the agenda for the coming year, looking citywide at code reform. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I would encourage you to, to look how you know, other cities have attempted this. Uh, it, it might be useful. I found it useful looking at how other cities have have approached this. It's a very challenging issue mm -hmm. because so many so many cities have dedicated so much of their land to single-family housing that is not always accommodating in terms of trying to increase density. You know, Minneapolis, for example, they've um, I think they've they allow up to three units on a residential property in a single family zone, but not many 
property owners are taking advantage of it. <coughs> so it looks great. I mean, wow, Minneapolis. You can now build three units where you only had one, but how, how many units are being created? It's, so it's, um, and I, you know, actually there are parts of Iowa City that I think are well adapted to affordable housing. Uh, any, any part of Iowa City that has alleyways is well adapted to creating more density. Well, that whole forest view area is just sitting there waiting. I know, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> Land is all clear. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I but think... But he owns it. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's not Do the they, city. Does somebody own it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But they're not building. Well, but I mean, just saying, the land does not belong to the city. Yeah, they, I think a lot of... You know, in terms of the strategic plan, the impact area of neighborhoods and housing is, I would, I would think is probably the most significant piece of this. Would you agree, Anne, or do you? I suppose mobility, too. Uh-huh. Um, economy, I mean, I think all of these things. They are all interrelated. Um, certainly mobility and land use. I mean, that is the other piece. Um, if you're talking, I've always, I've always argued on council that, um, you know, we tend to look at affordability in terms of just the housing, but it's, I think it's better to look at it as both transportation and housing. Those are the two main expenses of a household. If you combine them, I think the, the percentage that's typically used would be, it shouldn't exceed 45% of your household income. Um, but what that means is if you live in a walkable part of Iowa City, you can spend more on your housing because your transportation costs are down. Let's see, which other um, slides? We have resources. Um, I don't know what else you'd like to go over. That's... I like your idea, Mike, of, of us having a session where we yeah. think of what where we fit. I have one question, John, um, only because I'm kind of obsessed with the Iowa River. Um, currently, there's discussions going on to form a, a watershed management uh, agency for the middle Iowa River, which would be the Iowa River down to the reservoir. And I think Iowa City is participating in that, even though um, none of the city limits are in that. But there's nothing going on about the lower Iowa River watershed, which is from the reservoir on down to the Mississippi. And that is probably the primary geologic feature of Iowa City. And I just don't understand why we're not paying more attention to the Iowa River. I mean, that's been the major source of uh, problems in the past with the flooding. Um, it's a, certainly a resource for, uh, for tourism and recreation. It just seems like it's just a perpetually missed opportunity you know, we've traded like Wilson Creek and um, uh, what's the creek right here? Ralston. 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 And I remember more like drainage ditches than anything else. And um, I just didn't see much mention in this, and I know this isn't the place for that, so, but it's something I will certainly bring up, that um, how, how can we not pay attention to the primary geological feature in Iowa City? And water quality, water quantity, Boy, they're going to be—they're big now, and they're going to be bigger in the future. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, just want to bring that up. Just so yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it, it's water quality in the state of Iowa is one of the most challenging issues the state faces. 
then water quantity, you know, from the floods, you know, holding all that water back so we can slow down our floods, make the creeks retain water more in the streams and the different basins. So I'm also just saying that to get everybody's thought processes sort of thinking about this because I, 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 yeah. I don't know if it's a whole lot we can do about that, but I just think it's pretty important for long term for Iowa City. Well, in terms of flooding, um, you know, the use of detention basins, I think, is another interesting aspect of land use planning. You know, we, we, we just approved that project, um, Western Homes. Um, I thought that was a, a, the use of the detention basin there was treated as a, a focal element in the development, not sort of just this, you know, these craters <laughs> you know, that sort of happen uh, without any. Which is almost what it always is. You know, you'll look at the presentations from the, the, uh, the different planning firms and then as an aside, they'll talk about the outlots that right. the detention basins are on. Yeah, I mean, they had an opportunity there to, you know, it, the, the low point on the property was not sort of in the, the uh, lower east corner of the property or something, but, but they were able to incorporate that and actually arrange the development around that water feature. Um, I had wanted to say, and hopefully, you know, as, as the project develops, the the amenities around that water feature will be promoted. I mean, there wasn't any, that's, that's a level of detail you wouldn't see. But I, I could see where there would be an attempt, again, to create a gathering, opportunities for gathering in that central open space with the water as the central feature. Um, it's set up to function that way, and I suspect it will. But yeah, if, if water, you know, the, our water, um, Flood control can be used as an amenity and not simply, well, um, it, this, this looks like an engineered water detention basin, but, but it doesn't really, you know, contribute anything to the quality of the, of the development. I agree, because right now they're designed just to be mowed with turf grass, but they always end up with invasive species of weeds and saplings, and then they become overgrown. Then eventually, when it's really overgrown, somebody goes in there and just sort of clear cuts it but it's really a missed opportunity because why can't that all be, and, and I know the primary purpose is water detention, but what a great opportunity for some habitat, for some pollinators and mm -hmm. uh, various other things. It's just sort of a, one of the things maybe we should think about and recommend about, to just not let it all go to turf grass and maybe something else. We talk about it a lot, it seems like. But we don't have any teeth. Right. So, mm. it it is an irony to me, you know, coming from the West Coast in California, and uh, water is scarce there. I mean, one one thing that drew me to the Midwest was there's water all year round. You know, it may be snow, it may be ice, uh, it may be rainfall, but mm. it's a it's a uh, there's a lot of precipitation all year round here, so it's very green typically. Um, California dries out. It's it's a semi-desert, and it feels dry. You know, here it's it feels lush, almost sometimes too lush. <laughs> if uh, you know you don't get the mowers out there, um, but it's very green. It, you know, it sort of it goes through this transformation here, of you know the death of winter, the dead of winter to you know tropical paradise, <laughs> and um, it's it's. It's an astonishing transformation. 
and, and water is an, an important part of that. So if, if there's ways of trying to capture it, but develop it in, in, a, in a way which is pleasing, and, and as we're saying, adds to the biodiversity of the site, then you're really talking. Um, and it's not just simply that you're trying to mitigate the potential flooding um, downstream, you know, which, which is an issue. Better, better to retain all these sources of water that may be coming to the Iowa River before they arrive, so we don't have flooding on, on our major rivers and streams. But how can we incorporate them in our property development so that they're an amenity and not just, well, we have to deal with the stormwater now, what are we going to do? ADA is often the same issue. You know, you sort of, it's an afterthought. How do you, how do you incorporate access? Oh, right. I get, you know, so you, we, you add something at the end of the project and it hasn't been deeply integrated into the site plan. Yeah. Without starting with the concept of disability first. Yeah, just right from the get-go, how can we, it should be invisible. It should be so well integrated into the design that you don't even notice it as ADA access. In fact, maybe it's sort of this other interesting way of experiencing the circulation on the site. Um, there's some wonderful opportunities with ramps and so forth that, you know, can be, if they're incorporated well, um, are more than just simply providing accessibility. It's sort of choreographing movement in an interesting way. Um, so yeah, a lot of these things that we sort of view as, you know, burdening in the process actually can enhance the project if, if they're viewed in, you know, a different way. But yeah, mobility, and, and mentioned mobility. Um, that has, you know, that mobility and land use are, are correlated, really. And, and unfortunately, you know, we don't have, I, 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 I did, when I was on PNZ, asked if we could include transportation under the mission of, of planning and zoning because of the fact that um, our, our transportation systems, our mobility networks, and our land uses need to be understood as two sides of the same coin. If you, if you want density, you've got to figure out alternatives to the automobile, because if you build up that density and everyone's still in their car, you've got a nightmare. You, you have to somehow um, create that alternative with the high density, because otherwise the, the cars are going to crowd out what little space you have left. Um, so, so the things have to work in, in you know, unison. Um, and, you know, great, great to build density, but, you know, at the same time, let's make sure our bicycle networks are in place, our, our pedestrian networks are well-functioning, we have good transit service. You can't have good transit service without high, higher density. That's, you know, most of Iowa City is not designed for transit. The densities aren't high enough. You know, you need, my readings, you know, any, roughly 20 units per acre to make transit work. And we have a lot of RS5 zoning. So it works well as a commuting system, but in terms of everyday use, or creating little neighborhood commercial pockets, you know, where you could walk to the um, places like Deluxe, <laughs> you know. Everyone wants a little, you know, cluster of neighborhood serving retail like that, you, you have to have density to serve it, you know, at a, at a scale that's walkable. And it's tough to do if you have 
you know, RS5 densities. That's, you know, the alternative and what I've tried to, you know, how do I, how do I resolve that? Well, I, I've tried to resolve it by saying, if we have good bicycle networks, even in RS5 zones, you can, you can access a lot in Iowa City by bicycle if you have good bicycle networks, but not everyone can bike. Um, Pardon me? We have winter winters. Yeah, well, you know what's, what's interesting is some of the highest bike use is in the Nordic countries. Yeah. Probably the most bike-friendly city in the world is in you know, the Arctic Circle of Finland. But they have the infrastructure. They, they are committed. With. They are committed to maintaining that infrastructure. Right. And they, they committed in part because they understand we can't do these higher densities unless we have these alternative networks. So they, they get on, the, you know, when they, when they have a snow event, they get on their bicycle networks. Uh, you know, it's not, not at the end of the whole snow removal process. It's coincident with snow removal for the vehicles. So, that, you know, it's, it's just a matter of are you going to make it a priority or not? And unfortunately, it's, that's a ch it seems to me a chicken and an egg problem. You know, if you don't, I know we're promoting bicycling. Um, and it's another one for me, an observational thing. I'm, I'm, you know, I had high expectations that as we expanded the network, we'd see more people on bicycles. And I'm not sure I'm seeing them, at least as I go around town. <coughs> I don't know if it's that the on-street systems are, are not, cons you know, bicyclists don't feel safe using them. Maybe I'm just missing the data and they actually are using them, but the trail system here is incredible. But the on-street network concerns me. Um, so, I mean, on a number of these things, I, I just, I th I'm trying to think of these, these issues in terms of feedback. We, we, we make decisions, whether it's zoning, transportation policy, what have you, I think it's important to revisit uh, our, our decisions and see how well they turned out and do we need to make changes. Um, it's sort of, you know, an ecological principle. Make, make your feedback loops as, you know, in a timely fashion. Don't let things lag uh, because what I've learned in, in my work when I was working as a landscape architect, every, every decision I made was, was in effect an hypothesis as to how, how that park was going to work. And in, in a way, I think it's the same with zoning, planning and zoning. You know, it's a hypothesis. We think it's going to work. It's consistent with the comp plan. Probably will work. Um, but I think we need to verify these things. Because as I said, uh, south of Burlington, someone thought that was going to work. Um. Yeah, it, it, it's very difficult. Um, I'm really glad you brought that up because on the whole quality improvement, if you're doing the plan, do, check, act circle in land use, how long do you wait before you act? You know, you're checking, you're checking, you're checking, but how long do you wait and then say, it's not working, we got to do something else? I think that's the difficult question. Mm -hmm. Is it three years, 10 years? I, I don't know. I thought with the bike net, you know, we did the bike master plan five years ago. I thought maybe it's time to just see how we're doing. You know, what, what, what parts of the system are working well, what parts aren't. What, what, what might we have learned or can learn from other countries that are pursuing 
bicycle networks because in my observation is that in the last 10 years, it's one of the areas that things have really changed in terms of understanding how you design a bicycle network. Standards are just in constant flux. So, you know, we have our lanes on the street are defined by paint on the ground. Um, for a while it was, well, the new standard is protected bike lanes. There has to be some vertical element defining that bike lane uh, for the user to feel safe, at least on major streets. Then there was an acknowledgement that maybe that even isn't even enough. You, you need to actually separate those lanes from the traffic in some fashion. So there isn't any potential of, as you would on a bike lane in Iowa City, um, have a car stray into the bike lane. Uh, or if they did, there would be some barrier between, began, if they began to do that, there would be a barrier that would restrain them. Um, so it's a constant, the, the, what we think to be the answer may not be the answer. <laughs> that I, maybe, I, I don't know how long you, you want to continue talking, but this, this is another aspect of what we're dealing with in terms of land use and transportation is in the last 10 years, things have changed a lot. And so what we thought was the truth 10 years ago has been reevaluated. Well, I think it's a nice thing that the council members are, I assume, other than you, maybe other people are doing other boards and commissions. Yeah, Andrew so, was supposed to come tonight, and yeah. he's in uh, So I appreciate that, and it's it's been, I think, that we'll carry something on and have conversation, but I'm ready to go on to the next thing, if everybody else is. I really appreciate this opportunity, John. That was very kind of you to come and do this, and it was good to hear your opinions, and I think you've got us, our creative juices flowing to put this on the future agenda and see what we can come up with. And well, thank you. As, as I think most of you know, I'm, you know, um, I'm not going to be running for a third term, so I am kind of in a reflective, <laughs> you know, what, what have I learned uh, through this whole process, and... Um, you know, this. I, I hope you you don't feel like I've been trying to persuade you of uh, my observations, but um, I, I did want to share some of the experiences I've had, and I'd you know be happy if any of you would like to get together and talk about affordable housing further. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to do that. Very good. Thank Thanks, you, John. Thank you. Appreciate it very Thank much. You. I do want to say that it, I did enjoy the way whoever put this together did it because it wasn't like having just words. Uh, everything was ma mapped out. It didn't take a lot, to, lot of time to get through it. And I actually, um, I think I got more out of it with it being done this way. Yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a nice, pithy little document, well organized. So when we talk about it, I'll, we'll do that. Very good. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I will go on to item number five, presentation and discussion of the 2022 Iowa City Residential Development Analysis. Ann? Oh, thank you, Ann Russett with Neighborhood and Development Services. Um, this is an annual uh, analysis that staff puts together of residential development within Iowa City. So this is for the year 2022. As the chair alluded to, it's not really good news, um, but we'll we'll get into that. Um, so what we're it what was, we really it was kind of frightening actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and and you know. 
piggybacking on the conversation about housing affordability, this impacts housing affordability in, in Iowa City for sure. So what we looked at was residential subdivision data, building permit data, um, really to track short and long-term development patterns. And this is really an important part of planning and making sure that we can accommodate the growth and the population projections that we anticipate and the housing needs that we have in the city. Um, so f final plats, we looked at final plats. I know the commission doesn't view final plats, but it's the next step after preliminary plats. So once council approves a final plat, it's really creating those lots for new development. Um, so we looked at final plats, building permits, and then we were really looking at single family, duplex, and multifamily developments. Some of the takeaways is that um, 2022 continued the trend of low levels of residential lot creation. Um, the number of uh, dwelling units permitted through the building permit process did increase slightly um, from 2021, but the city is still seeing fewer units permitted than before the pandemic. Um, and permit activity continues to outpace the creation of new lots. So we're seeing a diminishing supply of residential lots in the city. If residential growth continues at this pace, the city will only be able to accommodate less than 6,300 new residents by 2030 when the growth projection is over 10,000. Um, and redevelopment can provide some additional housing, um, but the city is still on track to experience unmet demand and deplete its supply of all vacant lots. So, so let's look at final plat activity. This chart that you see here are the anticipated dwelling units based on lots that have been platted for 2022. And then you can see the 10-year average and the 30-year average. In 2022, only two residential um, final plats were approved. That included 18 single-family lots, which is part of Sand Hill Estates, which is south of Weatherby Park, and the one lot that was created for the senior, um, senior housing facility over by Hickory Hill Park. So that can accommodate 100, about 158 units, um, but that's considering that one lot for Hickory Trails as units when it's actually just beds. So it's it's not technically new units, but it, it does help um, it does help address some of our residential needs. Um, Without that, how would this look? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so this was the fewest single family platted lot since 1990. Again, it was only 18. There were zero duplex lots created. So you can see kind of com compared to the 10 year average for single family is 128 lots. And we only had 18 last year. The 30 year average is 133 and we only had 18. Um, so lot creation tends to occur in cycles, so we're kind of, we're in a down downturn, right? So hopefully it, it goes back up. Um, we can look at some of these charts that show the, the number of lots platted over a period of time. This is from 2012, or 2012 to 2022. Um, you get a better sense of kind of that roller coaster that we're seeing in terms of um, lot creation from this chart, which goes back to 1990. So you can kind of see that there was a peak in 1999, 2003, and, and then more recently in 2015. But since 2015, it's kind of, it's con gone down. And obviously there was a, a downturn during the Great Recession around 2008 and after that. 
Looking at building permit activity, um, again, this chart shows dwelling units based on building permits issued. So in 2022, for single family, there were 95 permits issued, um, two duplexes, and then um, 266 multifamily units. And you can see, again, that compared to the 10-year and 30-year averages, it's below. Um, there, there, it was an uptick from 2021, though. We had fewer issue, uh, building permits issued in 2021. Um, duplexes, that's harder to track. The, it's, not as, it's not as steady, but because there, there's more variation with duplex units, but it is lower than our long-term averages. Um, in terms of multifamily, there was, um, 2022 is an increase from 2021, but it's lower than our longer term averages. And I, I guess the other thing, this, these 266 units, 249 of those units are from one project in, in 2022. So here's some charts that kind of show the longer term data going back. This um, is from 2012. So you can see how it fluctuates and then going back uh, to, to 1990. You can see uh, there was a big spike in, in 2016, and that kind of corresponds with the spike we saw in lots created in 20, 2015. Um, and also with the Riverfront Crossings Master Plan being developed um, and implemented, there was, we did see kind of an uptick in development activity after that, but since that time it's, it's trended down. So looking, the next thing we looked at was vacant lots. So vacant lots, single family and duplex all across the city to see um, development potential. And we looked at whether or not those lots have infrastructure, the infrastructure needed um, to, to build on or if, um, if infrastructure was not provided yet. And so what we're seeing is uh, the single family and duplex lot supply has decreased over time. Units permitted exceed the, the new lots that are created since um, at least 1990. Um, based on the trends from 2012 to 2021, this supply of lots will last two years for single family, and that's down from 2.7 years in 2021 and 2.4 years for duplex units. Um, unlike the analysis we did in 2021, the 2022 analysis is more comprehensive. It includes all of the vacant lots in Iowa City. So this indicates a, a deficit in single family and duplex lot supply um, being larger than we had thought it was last year. Looking at vacant multifamily lots, um, multifamily units permitted exceeded the lots created since 1990. Unlike single family and duplex, though, that's um, not necessarily uh, a, a really bad indicator because a lot of multifamily development doesn't rely on new lots created. It's redevelopment. It's infill, unlike single family and duplex. But based on uh, 2012 to 2021 development trends, this supply of lots will last 1.8 years for multifamily units. Um, and redevelopment of existing lots, again, would ex extend that timeline. Um, there's still capacity for additional units on partially developed lots that weren't included in this count. So um, 
we didn't look at vacant. We looked at vacant, but we didn't look at underutilized sites or sites that are put, could potentially see some redevelopment in the near future. So looking forward, um, the Metropolitan Planning Organization of Johnson County projects a demand for over 10,000 new residents in Iowa City by 2030. And, and based on these development trends, Iowa City will fall, fall short um, of the housing needs and the development that we need to accommodate those new residents. Um, if um, 20, uh, just 2,600 new residents would be accommodated if all vacant and residential lots were developed. Um, 3,100 new residents would be accommodated based on average annual lot creation trends. So if that trend continues, we'd be able to house another 3,100 residents, not the 10,000 that we expect. Um, 6,200 new, almost 6,300 new residents would be accommodated based on the average annual building permit trends from 2020 to 2022. So to meet that last scenario, the most optimistic, which is around 2,300 new residents, all currently platted vacant lots would need to be built on including those that don't currently have infrastructure, an additional 689 single family, 30 duplex, and 935 multifamily units would need to be platted over the next seven years. And this would still only accommodate 61% of the projected growth that um, is anticipated in Iowa City. And then it, it, we have some kind of scenarios on to meet the full demand of that 10,000 10, new units, what would need to happen. So again, I think I touched on these in the beginning, but um, these are the key trends. Um, continued low levels of residential lot creation, permit activity continues to outpace the creation of new lots, so we're, we're losing our lot supply. We need more lots um, to be created. Um, despite this, the number of dwelling units developed has increased over the past 30 years, primarily due to multifamily redevelopment, primarily in riverfront crossings, um, which does not depend as heavily on the creation of new lots. If residential growth continues at this pace, the city will only be able to accommodate less than 6,300 new residents by 2030. And while redevelopment provides additional housing, the city is on track to experience unmet demand and deplete its supply of vacant lots. So what are, what are the implications of this? Housing, back to housing affordability. Um, what we talked about at a, a few meetings ago, we talked about um, supply. Housing supply isn't not the only factor and not, doesn't, isn't the only thing that impacts housing affordability, but it is a major factor. Um, we need more housing. Um, the lack of supply can lead to increased competition for a limited supply of residential lots, and housing, the cost of housing goes up. There's also environmental impacts. If we can't accommodate our, our growth within the city, it has to go somewhere. Um, it could go to Tiffin or North Liberty, um, further away from more employment centers, which is gonna you know, increase car dependence and traffic congestion. So. Uh, staff thinks it's really important to continue encouraging res residential growth in the areas where it's appropriate, infill locations with access to city services and within those areas that are de designated growth areas that um, we anticipate will at some point be annexed and become part of the city. 
so that's um, that's that concludes my presentation. I, I can try to answer any questions. I actually didn't do this analysis. Kirk did. Um, he's not here tonight, though. I saw him walk by. <laughs> he was at um, another meeting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is very sobering. I think it presents some um, challenges to us because it seems pretty clear to me that this will put an increased um, stress on affordability. I just don't see any way around that. And the other thing is these people will move somewhere. They're, they're leaving the small counties. Our conversation we had before the meeting started about how most counties in Iowa are shrinking. Those people are moving to the urban areas, including Iowa City. We're one of the um, faster growing urban areas. And if they can't live in Iowa City where they're working, so they work at UIHC or UI or someplace else, then they'll live in a surrounding area, which means they're driving to work. So now we're, we're hurting our environmental goals and we we're um, not addressing affordability because we're not dealing with, <clears throat> with one of the things we actually have some control over, which is volume. Um, creating the opportunity for more structures to get built for people to live in. So it's just the challenge I think we have to face very soberly that is there anything we're doing that is discouraging um, housing and housing opportunities? And because um, those houses are getting built, they're just not getting built in Iowa City. And there's probably reasons for that. And what can we do to change that so people actually can live where they work? In the community they work in, so that's just my little sharing thoughts. So, any well, I, I would expect. I mean, one of my questions was going to be that housing construction is down everywhere because it costs so much more since 2020. I mean, 2020 shut everything down, and when it started to open back up again, inflation and lack of personnel to build a house you know, combined to make it harder to get it done. So, I mean, when you say it's not like, I mean, I, I agree that the, the people are choosing to live maybe and, and maybe more housing is being built in North Liberty and Tiffin, but I bet they're not happy with the number of houses they've had built in the last two years either. It, it, you, it, is, a tr it is a cycle and we're in the bottom of it, but it's like, how do we get out of it? And, and I, I agree. I mean, we can't control the financial end of it, so the, 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 how people finance their new construction or their homes, but we need to make sure we're not putting up any roadblocks and actually this, uh, find ways to encourage people because we really, there's something wrong with the society when you can't live in the community you're working in. That's a real, there's a red flag being waved there. and. So the people that are in service positions at the university or the hotels or whatever that can't live in Iowa City, we need to look at that. And yeah. there's an affordability problem, and that's only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. pretend to have an answer here. But we'll never find an answer if we just don't keep struggling with the question. Yeah, and I think I, I mentioned before, there is a town in Colorado, which is a really good example because it's in the mountains and it's, the housing is very expensive. So people that have houses there is, goes to the mount, mountain to ski, but then the coffee shops cannot hire anybody because service people cannot live yeah. there. So 
That that could be also a problem for us because like high V will have less probably less applications. If people cannot live here, they will choose sometimes they won't have to um, they won't um, choose to travel here to work. They might choose somewhere else to live and work. And the other thing that I heard the um, city manager talk about in the last city council meeting was that I think he said three quarters of our um, revenue comes from residential taxes. So that's also a big, a huge problem for the city. Um, that we need to consider. Glad you brought that up. I, I know we're never supposed to consider that when we're talking about uh, approving or rezoning or anything, but the fact is the city is financed by property taxes, so it's always sort of in the back of my mind. <laughs> so I'll be, I've actually let that leak out a few times um, because to have a healthy, vibrant city, we have to have the financial resources to provide that healthy, vibrant city. And um, do we ever, like in this comparison, do we ever benchmark uh, compared to like neighboring communities? You know, that's a good question. I was, I don't know what the numbers look like for other jurisdictions, but I would agree with what Susan said. They're probably seeing a, fewer units and, house, and housing come online as well, but I just don't know how it compares to us. Yeah, because um, I mean, just uh, I guess driving around and being interested in construction it feels like uh, the growth is maybe a little bit outside of the city, kind of in the, mm -hmm. that fringe area. Also, kind of by um, Liberty High School, you see a lot of development up there, uh, which kind of falls with, outside the Iowa City jurisdiction. Um, and so it, it seems like for recently, I mean, we're all facing, uh, or construction industries facing increased labor costs, lack of a lack of people to do it, skilled trades, um, and increased uh, land cost, increased uh, materials cost. So it's a lot of headwinds uh, on that end. Um, but also, I think, um, you know, on our part, on what we can control is, um, you know, continue to be like a good partner in that project, pushing it forward. Um, I think sometimes. Uh, we may get caught up in some of the uh, the perfect project versus kind of what fits the area. So just and there is, you know, I'm I live on the east side of town, and so I, you know, most of my shopping and errands and places I go are on the east side of town. But you know, we we just approved a considerable housing development on the corner of Scott and Rochester. Rochester. I mean, it, it, my memory is. 50, 60 houses, plants, lots, and then the senior living thing besides that. Um, so how long does it, and then there's development still going on uh, out American Legion Road. Houses are still being built out there. That's in the county, isn't it? Well, there, there is community view on American Legion Road, which is in the city. So some of those vacant lots that were in the analysis are in community view. But they have infrastructure. Right, right. I mean, so for example, take the the Scott and Rochester. I mean, what it takes a year to get the infrastructure in. Yeah, that that was that final plat was approved um, last month, maybe. So yeah, they 
they'll start putting right. infrastructure in and but I mean there but so that's platted here in 2023 so there's something we get to count yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you do it next year mm -hmm. but but no one will probably be building a dwelling there for a year yeah it'll it'll be a while yeah yeah because they have to do all the infrastructure, streets, sewers, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. But we do have a site plan that we're reviewing for that senior living facility. So that may come online sooner, as long as they can provide, you know, the street and what they need to to make it safe to get in and out. Where do you see the growth? I mean, I, I've been sort of anxious to see something in the the areas that we changed to form-based code. Mm -hmm. And it's like I'm excited, and I just want to go find somebody with <laughs> who wants to develop some of that land and do something cool with it. We should be kind <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> so, but no, n nothing in the pipeline yet that you know of? No. And that's another place where there is a development is off of Gilbert on the way the new housing development on your left as you drive to Terry Trueblood? Yeah, Cherry Creek. I Cherry Creek. Yeah, that's near your house, yeah, I think. And actually, it's it's turning out to me almost to be, and it started off pretty rough, if people remember, you know, when he um, cut down a bunch of trees before he got permission to yeah. do so. It's kind of turning out, though, if it keeps continuing, like a really an ideal development that you'll want to see. Multifamily. Um, right. Single family, townhouses, nice little layout. Just keep our fingers crossed. It's right. really looking good. So nothing in the pipeline for the form-based code areas? No, unfortunately, no. Um, Do we, I mean, you probably know who owns all that land. Well, Navigate Homes owns a lot of the land south of Weatherby Park. And... Um, We've had conversations with them, and I think that at some point they're going to move forward. But they're working on other—they're you know building homes out on Camp Cardinal Boulevard right now, and so they're. Um, yeah, the the personnel. I mean, you can't can't find people to do the work. Right, and they also were involved in the new self storage facility in the South District in Pepperwood Plaza, so that was a project that they wanted to move forward with. Uh, the retail and restaurant space where uh, Royce Ann Porter's new restaurant is. So they were involved in that too. So yeah, just just other things going on. But we staff really hopes we would love to see something happen down there or out on Raritan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is going to take a while to get. When do they project that the the uh, city services will be ran under 218 for? Yeah, that's soon. I think that construction is planned for this year. Yeah. I think this would be uh, good information for whoever comes in, in lieu of Mark. Like, good information to know this slide. Oh, for the new commissioner. For the new commissioner. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I also have to say, I this is uh, very eye-opening and it's very scary. But I am hopeful because I think COVID was like a, a big, had a big impact in everyone, uh, in all the communities. But I think that by 2030, we'll be recovered and maybe building again. 
<laughs> I hope so. I Did hope. you say 2030? Yeah. Hope it's, a lot, hope it's a lot faster than that. <laughs> I hope we don't have to wait that yeah. long. Any other questions for Ann on this presentation? Well, by the chart, it looked like about every 11 years, so 2026 might be a big year coming up. <laughs> that sounds I, way better than uh, 2030. Yeah, I like that. Thank you, Mr. Optimus. That's very good. Anyway, thank you. Ann, this is very helpful. I, I, I hope this gets wide disbursement. For people yeah. to read this, I think it's very. The Planning and Zoning Commission could like stand out on a street corner by a cornfield and say, "Build here, <laughs> build, build here." here. <laughs> well, and then we can't hold up the the zoning. You know, we can't. <laughs> it doesn't look good, All so right. we're not going to prove it. All right, thank you very very much, everybody. Item number six: consideration of meeting minutes for April 5, twenty twenty three. Is there a motion for approval? If there's no na no major additions or uh, uh, corrections. I think we did them already. I, I've made a couple changes based on <laughs> some input. And the wrong people, the wrong commissioners were identified okay. for the move approval. Second. Uh, motion by Craig, second by Townsend. Oh, <laughs> discussion? <laughs> Hearing no discussion, all those in favor signify saying aye. 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 Those opposed signify saying nay. Hearing no nays, motion is approved 6 0. Number seven, planning and zoning information. Anne. A few items. It was a busy night at council. Speaking of new lots that we want to be created, um, the Riverfront West final plat was approved. The Western Homes preliminary plat out by St. Andrew Church was approved. Um, and the Melrose Commercial Park subdivision out on um, Melrose was approved. The vacation of Grand Avenue Court was approved. And we, you were all at the... Or, Almost all of you were at the consult last night. The council did approve the first reading of that rezoning out on Dane Mormon Trek. With that, Two more readings, though. It had, did it have conditions with it? They were doing. It it did not end up with any additional yeah. conditions. It, it, it's it's very difficult to add conditions if you don't know the project, and you know they don't have to submit a project when they ask for rezoning. Right. So that's the difficulty over the conversation we just had, in which I didn't participate in because I didn't think there's any point. But I mean, you can't require people to give a concept plan. You know, they can just ask for a rezoning and then they're not held to it anyway. But, yeah. And and I don't blame them because it's just more to fight about. I mean Well because you <laughs> well, know Well I, I yes, the zoning is fine, but I don't like that project. And I don't think it's uh, it would be like a smart way of planning a city, like going project by project or pinpointing. Like I, I don't know. I think code base is um, better. Um, just so everybody knows, um, I just asked Dan if on the next agenda we can make sure that we put on election of a um, um, vice chair. Because I know I'm going to be gone in June. I have the last two weeks of May, I'll be in Colorado, and the first two weeks of June, I'll be in Alaska. So somebody's going to have to run a meeting. So just want to make sure we get that on the. As much as I love each and every person on this, I'm afraid I won't be doing that. <laughs> so anybody, anybody else want to add anything on PNC information? Um, just that in the packet, there, uh, Mark's vacancy was listed there as accepting applications, but they're also accepting applications for the two vacancies that are up July 1, which is Billy's and Chad's. 
And so we're going to need new people. I mean, mm -hmm. I assume that if Chad's interested and is, applies, he'll be reappointed um, since he hasn't been here very long. But I don't know how. Have you had two terms, Billy? One. One. So you could. How's that work? I forget. Do, do you just remind them to reapply, or they just need to do it when they see the notice? Yeah, that, I did not see it for Chad and Billy, so I can send you guys an email with the information. Yeah. Because we sure like to see both the, of you. Yeah, really. I think the, I'm too old. <laughs> the things they're currently accepting applications. Okay, for. I thought it was just Mark's. The only one so, okay. Uh, yes, I think you defy. Because I was looking to see if Mark's was there, and I saw theirs. I thought, whoa, it's April. Yeah. They work so far ahead nowadays. You gotta be on top of things. I kind of thought Anne was just trying to tell me something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on on the. Um, the secondary terms, you, you, I would hope it would just be pro forma and you guys get reappointed, but that's not always happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I just want everybody to know that. And I don't know if there's a rhyme or reason to it. Maybe Anne has a secret code she gives them for a yay or nay. I don't know. <laughs> but, it's, all, it's all city council. But, we don't uh, even really, we see the applications, but we have no input. Mm -hmm. just and joking. I do think it's good, you know, as a, a person who doesn't have that background, I'm very appreciative of the realtor background. Mm -hmm. And that we, when I joined, we had Phoebe and Mark. And, Mark. Yeah. and they have some, a different, a, a good knowledge base of communities and what's going on and issues. And, you know, if I was going to recruit somebody to apply, it would be a realtor. I agree. They're very helpful with the knowledge. Maybe you can tell, you know, you can tell the council that that's what you think, and they will uh, consider it. I know they look at um, when reappointing people that has already been on a on a com commission. They look at absent absentees absences. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing that they look at. Well, I think because the state gender balance laws, I think Mark has to be replaced with a male. I believe. Okay. Did yeah. they get rid of that law? Or nope. did they didn't? No. Okay. Anything else on PNZ information? Seeing none, on item number eight, adjournment. Can I have a motion? So moved. Second. Motion by Townsend, second by Elliott. Discussion. Hearing no discussion. All those in favor say <laughs> right. By saying aye. 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 Those opposed, signify by saying nay. Hearing no nays. The motion passed six to zero and we're adjourned. Thank you very much, everybody. I appreciate it. <laughs>